Our scripture comes this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. These are the words of the Lord. We continue this morning in our series through 1 Corinthians called Unsaintly Saints. And as we do, this morning we're talking about many messengers, one message. Many messengers, one message. Uh, Perhaps you're like me, I don't watch the NBA until playoff time. And it is now finals in the NBA, and uh, the two teams are back who were there last year. Some unknown team from Miami in the, play, in, in the finals, and then there are the Spurs. Interestingly enough, most commentators say the Spurs are going to win. And you wouldn't expect that. You would expect a star-studded team like Miami to win uh, because the Heat have... Uh, The big three, LeBron James and Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade. And you would think, wow, those three players are going to come together. And and, and the Spurs have the old uh, team. Uh, Ginobili, who has no hair, uh, is almost 40, or maybe he is 40. And and Tim Duncan is old, and uh, you've got a bunch of old guys. So why is it that the commentators say that the Spurs could beat the Heat this year? Because of the Spurs' ability to spread the ball around, Um, they can spread their offense and they can uh, pass the ball and they use every member of those starting five, whereas the Heat use three guys uh, with some supporting actors. It is the power of unity, the power of teamwork. It exists in athletics, it exists In education, it exists in business, and it is imperative in the church. It is imperative that we be one as a local church and as local churches that we have one mission and one focus. And so Paul is writing to the church here in Corinth, and the church in Corinth is in an interesting spot. It was just four or five years earlier in A.D. 50-51 that Paul planted this church. He spent a year and a half in Corinth ministering and serving there. And then he trekked over to Ephesus. And in Ephesus, he received notice from Chloe's people that there are some divisions in the church back at Corinth that Paul founded. Uh, They're quarreling with one another. Paul got word of that, 
In addition, the believers at Corinth wrote Paul a letter asking him some questions. And so this letter back to the Corinthian church is to answer those questions. Corinth, a fascinating place. Corinth is the wealthiest city at this time uh, in 50 AD. It's the wealthiest city in Greece. It is a port city. It uh, has about 80 thousand citizens. If you at this time were to have trekked into Corinth, you would have seen a large stone mountain, like Stone Mountain outside of Atlanta, Georgia. You would have seen a large mountain, and on that mountain you would have seen a temple to the goddess of love, Aphrodite. Milling around the city of Corinth, one contemporary author to Paul says were uh, at least a thousand cult prostitutes involved in the worship there. Uh, sexuality and sensuality was woven into the worship in Corinth. This was a city dominated by a group of people called patrons. Patrons were wealthy citizens who had arranged, uh, it was a corrupt system, and they had arranged to have the law and to have other folks at their disposal, Corinth was a place of art. It boasted a theater that seated 3,000 people. It boasted an amphitheater that seated 18,000 people. And every other year, the Isthmian Games were taken, were held there, second only to the Olympics in uh, that day. This was the center of culture and wealth in Greece. And it is into that center of culture that Paul went to start a church. And you thought McDowell County was hard, right? Uh, there in Corinth. And there are problems in the church. Namely, in this section, the problem is unity, or disunity is the problem. The need is unity. So how Paul responds in this section of the letter is to give them three directives, all building on the same word, and the word is same. Say the same thing, he says, have the same attitude, and hold the same values. Where do we hear Paul say that? Verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. This phrase that all of you agree literally means to say the same thing. The same mind, that word mind, some of your translations may render it attitude. And judgment means what you value. Say the same thing, have the same attitude, hold the same values. How is it that they are going to say the same thing? Verse 17 Paul says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. What it is that they are to say is the gospel. And so that begs the question, what is the gospel? 
I love Tim Keller's take on this. In his book, The Reason for God, this is what Keller says. He says, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. That's the gospel. I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. There was absolutely no other hope for me than Jesus Christ himself. My sin so great, my problems so desperate that they required someone to intervene, namely Christ. I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. I am so loved that he was glad to die for me. That is the gospel message. And that message has to be central to everything we do as a church and everything we say. Here at Grace, we are involved in so many things in this community, and we reach out into this community, and there are some things I'm going to challenge men, just to put you on notice. Men, I'm going to challenge you by the end of our time together. But there are things on the stage that have to do with that very thing, but here is the reality It is given to the church and to the church alone the responsibility to communicate the gospel. There is no other agency. There is no other organization. There is DSS. It isn't their responsibility. The public school system, it isn't their responsibility. It is the responsibility of the church to herald the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is our unique message that we have the privilege and the joy to proclaim. We say the same thing. Many messengers across the country and around the world this morning, we have a team who is in Ecuador, even as I speak, ministering, and as they are there in Ecuador, ministering even now, they are there proclaiming what? We are so sinful Christ had to die for us. We are so loved, he was glad to die for us. That's the gospel message. The old songwriter says, we have heard the joyful sound. What is it? Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Spread the tidings, the news, all around. Jesus saves. That's the gospel message. What happens when we err away from that message? There are multiple things that can happen to a church. The same holds true in business. In 1951-52, Thomas Watson Jr. became CEO of IBM, a company that his dad founded. At that time, they had 50-some thousand employees, 56,000 employees. Large company for the early 50s. Watson Jr. led that company for 20 years. Their focus was one thing, mainframe computers. That was their bread and butter. It's all they did. They built and maintained, designed mainframe computers. Those of you who are 30 and older know what I'm talking about. Remember, as a college student, there was a room that was guarded at all costs. Why? It held the computer. 
That room was air-conditioned appropriately, heated appropriately, dehumidified appropriately. It had its own generator. No one went near it. It was the room. Why? Because it held that computer, and IBM held that market. 1971, Thomas Watson Jr. had a heart attack, and when he did, a successive number over the next 20 years, a successive number of CEOs came into IBM, and when they did, they decided, wow, we're so good at this. We are so successful at mainframe computers, we should add some stuff. So they added copiers. We have many school teachers in the room, none of you who love copiers. They seldom work, right? When they break, it's right at a critical time. IBM went into copiers. They decided to enter the PC world. They decided to enter the high-end software world, all of which failed. By 1993, the company was on the brink of disaster. When the board met and said, we got to do something about it. So they called up Louis Gerstner. And what's interesting is that Louis Gerstner had never in his life worked in computers. He had been the CEO of Nabisco. He had worked in upper-level leadership at American Express. But they called him in, and his immediate action in 1993 was to say, we've gotten away from the main thing. Our main thing is mainframe computers, business solutions for large companies. That's what we can do around the world. And in a period of the next 10, and leading now all the way up to now, turned IBM around, one of the most successful companies today. Why? They got back to the main thing. Any church that veers from the gospel, any church that veers from the gospel has the potential of being, not immediately, no, good leadership, you can navigate it, but eventually you will be awash at sea amidst nothingness. And what you declare, what that church declares, will not be a penetrating message in a dark and dying world. Say the same thing. A couple weeks ago, I met with the leadership team for our preschool. When we build a new building, we'll have a sweet early education center and preschool center much needed in this county. Much needed. Uh, Kids are turned away every single day in preschool centers in this county for lack of space. And so we'll be able to have a preschool for 75 kids. It's going to be huge. The team that met is so incredibly talented and gifted. And as those folks talked, I simply sat there and listened. And we began to map out what it's going to look like. Here's what rose to the surface. We want a gospel-centered, Christ-centered place where we can with excellence and early proclaim the gospel to these kids and equip them to be ready to enter elementary school. Anybody can do preschool if they want to, but a church can do a Christ-centered, gospel-centered preschool that God uses wonderfully in the, in the lives of young children. On our bulletin, you see our purpose statement every single week. Even our announcements are plugged in where they fit. Why? Because everything we do at Grace must either exalt Christ, transform lives, or embrace a community. It's in there somewhere. 
And if it doesn't fit in there, we don't do it. Why? That's what God has called us to do. This laser-like focus is absolutely necessary for the spreading of the gospel in McDowell County and all over the world. Say the same thing. What is the same thing? I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. I am so loved that Jesus was glad to die for me. Number two, have the same attitude. Verse 10, back to verse 10. Paul says, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. What is the problem? Well, the problem there is that you've got some guys, and and there's Paul, Apollos, Cephas, this group. Who are they? Paul started the church. Apollos is a gifted orator. He is a fantastic preacher. He is a great speaker, and he came in and followed Paul. Paul always talks of his inability to speak. If you read Paul's writing, he'll say, I don't have that gift, but Apollos has that gift. Apollos could stand in a crowd, and every eye would be on him. Every ear would be turned in. Nobody would be falling asleep because Apollos can command a crowd. And then there's Cephas, and there's no evidence that Peter, Cephas, or Peter ever went to Corinth. Perhaps he did, but he had a following. He was distinctly Jewish. He was in charge of the church of God at Jerusalem. He was distinctly Jewish, and guess what? There are some people who liked Paul. They were waning in Corinth by this time. But there were some people who liked Paul, and others said, have you heard that that Apollos guy preach? I mean, he's good. And so if it was announced, you know, if they had all been there at the same time, and it had been announced that Paul was speaking, well, the numbers might be low. But put on the marquee that Apollos is going to be in town and what's going to happen. Oh, they're going to pack the place out. The guy can preach. And then there's there's Peter. So all the good Jewish converts, they like Peter. And factions developed over personalities and preferences. That's how it normally works, isn't it? Churches divide not over beliefs. That's the point at which we draw the line. We die on the heels of beliefs. If you want to know what our beliefs are as a church, go to our website. You'll see them listed there. Those are the hills we die on. Most churches do not die on those hills. They do not. Most churches divide over convictions and preferences. Beliefs should be adhered to, and they're universal. Everyone should believe them based on Scripture. Convictions are personal things that I hold that you may not hold. They're very important to you, and mine are very important to me, but they will differ. What are those things? In our county, one primary conviction that separates churches is version of the Bible you use. Right? In this county, it's huge. Uh, we, I use the ESV here. Uh, some preachers here use the NIV. Others use the New American Standard. And there are churches that think we're going straight to hell because we don't use the King James Version. It's a very tightly held conviction by them. 
What is the point? The point is that that should never divide brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? Should never divide us. Absolutely should not. The point is I should not deride anyone who wants to use the King James. Neither should they deride me. It is not a central issue to the faith. And then there are preferences. What are preferences? Some of you loved the last song we did this morning, didn't you? Say amen. Amen. You loved it. Some of you have never heard it. What are we singing? You've never heard that song, uh, that last song. Others of you, when you heard it, you thought Bill Gaither. I mean, you, you just thought homecoming. And, oh, I remember watching this video, and you had moments of glory, you know, that just came running through the historical veins of your body. And you thought, ah, oh, finally, this church is singing a good song. Because he lives, and you just, it was just heavenly for you. And then some of you are younger, like, what? This song is just going so slow. What does it mean, you know? Ah, da da da, da da da. But, you know, when Dave got up here and we kind of rocked it out a little bit at the beginning, you're like, this is good. This is why I like this church. It's this music, this, this, that's a preference. That's absolutely a preference. There's no place in Scripture that says we can't sing the first song and only have to sing the last song. Or we can't sing the last song and only have to sing the first song. There are great criteria that songs need to fit. All songs, old and young alike, need to fit. Those are preferences. That's where most churches part ways. In that area, that's not worth even arguing about. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, have the same attitude. Well, how do I deal with the differences I have? I mean, I'm wearing blue jeans and preaching. I have a, a friend of mine, a new friend I've been working with on some projects from Orlando. And so he emailed me this week. He goes to First Pres Orlando. He said, I want you to go watch my preacher. And so I go watch his preacher, and he's wearing a robe and like all decked out. And I'm thinking, I'm so underdressed. Look at me. That's a preference. How do you deal with that? One word. Here's the attitude. Humility. The attitude is humility. What does Paul, how does Paul answer the, the, the fan base, if you will, the, the Paulites and the, the Apollos uh, folks and, and those who love Cephas? He says this, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then he goes on to say, I just baptized a few of you. And I'm so glad it was just a few. It was Christmas, Gaius, oh yeah, the house of Stephanus. Those are the ones I baptized. I'm glad that's it. That takes humility on Paul's part. After all, he started that church. He could really take a lot of ownership into what happens there. He's fine for Apollos to come in and preach after him and and for Peter, uh, Cephas, to have his influence. He's fine with that. That takes humility to share the stage. That attitude must prevail. What are we tempted to be proud of at grace? Let's make it personal. This is 
who I'm speaking to. Well, it's certainly not our buildings. Amen? I mean, look, uh, we probably wouldn't be proud of that. Um, We're grateful, but we don't build cathedrals. Paved parking lot? (laughs) Nope. Not that. It's a nasty day to have a gravel, semi-dirt, gravel parking lot, isn't it? It's not the paved parking lot. Uh, The good-looking staff? Well, that could be any, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's not that. It, is, it was till Andrew, I'm just kidding. Uh, just kidding. He said he's just trying to be like me today, so I had to get, get on him. Uh, it's not that. Do you know what, what could make us proud? Well, God's blessing us numerically, isn't he? Small, small county like this and and we're just growing and growing and people are coming to faith in Christ like Rob and we're seeing them baptized and we could think that somehow we have the methodological edge on all the churches. So we could be proud of our methodology. Or we could be proud of all the work we do in the community. Could we not? We could say, wow, look what we do. and uh, That church doesn't do this. We do that. Guess what? It's easy to find something to be proud of. Our minds just tend to go that way. But the attitude, the prevailing attitude, Paul says, we are to have is one of what? Humility. We have some Lutherans in the room, and uh, they, they know who they are. Give them a hard time. Um, we're grateful to the Lutherans because it was Luther who invented congregational singing. Up until Luther's time, it was paid people on stage. Luther introduced congregational singing. Luther introduced a lot of things. God used him tremendously, and people liked him for it. And so during his lifetime, they started Lutheran worship. They called themselves Lutherans. This was his response to it, and I quote, What is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? Wow. He did not glory in having his name attached. Why? Christ has no equal. Amen? He has no equal. There is no preacher, there is no pastor, there is no evangelist, there is no one who is his equal. There is no one over the history of mankind who would be able to stand up to the level of Christ. We must have that same attitude. Here's how Keller finishes that quote out of the reason for God. He says, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet I am so loved and valued that he was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. If I truly believe that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, then when I look across the down the row and I go and I see uh, somebody, I go, oh, I know where they've been. Guess what? I am as flawed as they. I have no room to say, <laughs> look at you and look at you and your sin because why my sin is so obvious to me. 
But I don't stop there. I have great confidence. What is my confidence? That Jesus looked down the row and saw me and loved me enough to do what? To die for me. Why? He knows every thought you've had, every failure, every sin, every loss of your temper, every lustful glance. He knows every greedy move you've ever made. And he loved you enough to die for that. That ought to give you confidence. Humility in that you didn't deserve it. Confidence in that he would love you enough to go to that distance. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.2, very next chapter, For I resolved or decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Third, we hold the same values. What does Paul say? Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What do we value? Empty self, full gospel. Empty self, full cross. Emptied self, and Christ exalted. We hold the same values. We are here. Christ is here always. That's what we value. He says, if I preach with eloquent words of wisdom, I will empty the cross of its power. A sermon full of the preacher is a sermon empty of the cross. A life full of yourself is a life empty of the power of the cross. And Paul said, I choose, I decide to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Have you made that decision in your personal life? Those of you who are graduating and headed off to Western and to Western Piedmont and to NC State, have you chosen to go to NC State, to go to Western Carolina, to go to Western Piedmont and to know nothing among those catamounts, nothing among the wolf pack except Christ and him crucified? Could I say something to you? If you do not decide that now, it will not accidentally happen later. If you do not make a decision as you head into middle school to know Christ and him crucified as a middle school student, it will not just automatically happen to you. If you do not walk into your workplace and say, I make a decision, I make a commitment to know Christ and him crucified, that's it. I will live for, die for, uh, spread the gospel of Christ while I'm here. Guess what? It will not just happen. You have to decide that. We hold the same values. Christ here, us here. Our purpose statement at Grace is exalted Christ, transforming lives, embracing a community, but we have what we call our top ten, our values at Grace. Number one is Bible-centered teaching and preaching. Uh, Values are those things that stay consistent over time. In 2007, we met as a staff, and we had surveyed the folks. And then from the surveys of the folks, we put these top ten values together. And the number one at the top of our list was Bible-centered teaching and preaching. Every staff person since then, we've said we want them to be able. 
every pastor to teach, preach. Godly servant leadership, number two. Creativity and innovation. You'll see that unfold come kids camp. Stage was taped off when I walked in this morning, mapping it out to transform this place for kids camp. Creativity and innovation. I'm going to get the list, lest I forget. Praise and worship. What does that mean? That means we, we don't sing to each other. We have an audience of one when we come into this place, and that is God himself. Stewardship. Everything belongs to him. He simply loans it to us. Family. We value family tremendously. Servant evangelism. What is that? Meeting a need so others can meet Jesus. That's how we do evangelism here. We seek to meet needs. That opens the door so others can listen to the gospel of Christ from us. Prayer. Fellowship. And then one of my favorites, positive life change. What does positive life change? That means that as you come to grace, you may be here in your walk with God, and this is a continuum. All right, so in this continuum, there's a zero in the middle, and on the negative side is lost without Christ, and on the positive side is knowing Christ. And so everybody who comes in below zero, on the negative side we view at grace as pre-Christians. You've just not come to Christ yet. We cannot wait for you to come to Christ. And we are contented for you to hang out here as long as it takes for you to come to faith in Christ. And once you come to faith in Christ, you're baptized, new believer, follower of Christ. Our goal is to see you grow, 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 and grow. Guess what that means? We will never at this church have a holy huddle. Meaning we've got just a bunch of glorious, wonderfully arrived saints who walk in here. And the glory of God just kind of falls because we're all so amazingly holy. No. I mean, that couldn't happen as long as I'm pastor anyway. But, but, if we ever get to that place, guess what? We're reaching nobody with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If into this place, Sunday after Sunday, lost people do not walk, who you may look at and think, what are they doing here? Or what has happened in their lives? Or I know them to be fill in the blank. We are not accomplishing our mission as a church. Those values hold true for us. 50 years from now, Bible-centered teaching and preaching, family, stewardship. Vision changes constantly because the landscape changes, but your values never do. That's why they're so important to us. We value the same things. Hold the same values. One of the things we value is servant evangelism. So, man, I told you I would challenge you next Weekend is Father's Day. You may be surprised to know, I've shared it before, that if you as a dad, hear me men, if you as a dad love and know Christ and lead your kids to love and know Christ, 93% of the time they'll follow. If that is left up to your wife, if that is left up to the mother, that statistic falls to 17%. Doug Murrow, in his book, Why Men Hate Going to Church, deals very dramatically with this. On Friday, a group of Infuge staffers from, who are at Ridgecrest came down, and a group of our college students joined them, and Garrett and I got in a van 
and we went trekking around McDowell County. A week from today, we will start backyard Bible clubs in this county, and they'll run all through the summer at different times. There will be one located here a week from today. There will be one across from the pool at the park in Old Fort, and there will be one at uh, Riverside down in that um, mobile home park, all beginning a week from today. They'll run for three days. They're, college, they're high school kids coming from all over the country to uh, Ridgecrest on their mission trip, and this is their mission field. They will be joined by youth from Grace and college students from Grace as we work together to reach people. Eventually through the summer, we'll, we'll be at Spalding Apartments uh, over uh, on the west side of town. Uh, we will be at Eastfield Elementary School uh, by the time the uh, summer is out as well. And we will be at Cross Mill in that park right there in Cross Mill. Eventually, by the end of the summer, 600 students from around the country will descend on McDowell County and they will do ministry. As a matter of fact, the group that's coming here next week is driving all the way from Arkansas and bringing their own inflatables that they'll set up in the park. And we're hoping through our outreach this week as we go door to door and uh, through Lunch Bunch Outreach that we'll have loads of unchurched kids in our park while this service is going on next week here in the gospel. We have a very strategic follow-up plan for every kid who comes to Christ. In addition to that going on all over this county all summer, we've got multiple kids' camps going on here. In addition to that, a week from tomorrow, all the youth who are going to Journey Camp will load up and head out. A week from tomorrow, all the kids headed to Centra Kid from the church will load up Camp Extravaganza starts a week from today, locally and spread out. You talk about many messengers and one message? High school kids from all over the country with one message. To all of these kids at all of these locations around the county, what is the message? You are so flawed that Jesus had to die for you, and you are so loved that he was glad to die for you. So men, here's what I'm asking of you. It's some boldness. This next weekend is Father's Day weekend, and we are going to do 48 hours of prayer for all these camps and all these kids. I'm asking you, as men, to pray for all of those families who don't have a man in their life and all these kids that they'll come to faith in Christ. The way it will work is we'll start at 8.30 Friday morning. You'll just pray wherever you are. There's a prayer guide up here for you. And after you finish your hour of prayer, you may say, Jerry, I've never prayed an hour at one time in my life. Let me tell you, it will pass quicker than you thought. After you finished your hour, you'll simply call the person after you and say and pray with them, and then they'll start their hour. 
and we will finish at 8.30 Sunday morning as we come into this place. And then in our 9.30 service, 75 to 100 campers, infugers, Ridgecrest staffers will join us here. We'll pray for them as they head into this county to share the gospel. So, did this in the early service. We had 48 slots, and they filled up every single one of them. They're all full, and then they started to double. That's what we're doing. You have the privilege of filling up the rest. So, men, this is our invitation. I don't think we need music. I think you'll do fine without it. If you will pray for one hour sometime this weekend, would you come just sign up on one of these right here, Grab one of these. Robin will be in touch with your instructions this week. Come right now, and let's do that.